0: Sir Paul McCartney is considered one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. He's famously regarded as one of the Beatles' primary songwriters. And not only did the Beatles have a profound impact on the sound of the 60s, but their cultural influence was undeniable, from rock pioneers to counterculture enthusiasts. It makes me wonder what Paul's thoughts are when it comes to the meaning of the Beatles. But what do you think is the lasting meaning of the Beatles, if there's, if there's a meaning to be taken from this.
2: All you need is love. You know, after the 60s, that was kind of looked on as a bit sort of stupid. You know, hey, all you need is love, dude. You know, well, you need more. You know, we need weapons and we need defense or whatever, you know, which is also true. But it's, it's coming back. It keeps rolling back this idea that what these people on this planet need is love, you know. I always say to people, you know, we could have we had a really uh, satanic message and with the power we had. Boy, you know, we could have made quite a difference the other way. But we always chose not to do that. Nobody was remotely interested in that. We had this idea that all you need is love. Do it. The,
1: in and the end, I, I love... still
2: believe it. I think the idea gets knocked every so often because, you know, it's a violent world and that you do need other things. But I still think
0: that's the uh, that's the message. That being said, All You Need Is Love seems contradictory to what happened after Michael Jackson bought the rights to their catalogue. Michael Jackson has the rights now to all the Beatles stuff. How much did it bother you when uh, Revolution was used to sell Nike sneakers and things like that? Heaps.
2: With the Beatles, we had all those offers. You know, anybody who publishes songs, you get those offers. Hey, can we use this commercial? We had the offers from the big soft drinks companies. You know who I'm talking about. Big, huge offers to use a Beatles song, to use this and that. But we always turned them down because we believed it'd devalue the whole thing. We'd be seen to be selling out, which we were keen not to do. You know, we kind of felt that our fans believed in us and that we owed them some sort of integrity. We, we, we talked to them. We knew what they thought of us, you know. So something like Revolution, you know, it meant more than a pair of sneakers. But uh, anyone who knows music publishing, there's a lot of pressure on you to do that because it's a big heap of cash comes in suddenly and, you know, it's very hard to resist for anyone. But I, I think we shouldn't do that. I think it's more sensible to leave the kind of legend intact, and I think they'll—I think they'll do great the songs. I think they'll continue to do great, and I think to uh, commercialise them like that, um, I think it spoils them. And having taken that decision with the Beatles, it's now out of our hands, really. We we don't have the authority anymore yeah. to do that because it's now been sold. But I I do still think it's a pity personally, I also think, as I say, it's not, it doesn't make commercial sense. I think you weaken, 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 you end up with a weak catalog of songs that are thought of as sneakers, automobiles, Snickers bars, yeah. and stuff, you know.
0: If you are someone in as bright of a spotlight as Paul McCartney, you may look to the public for approval. Just like Paul's unique view on the commercialization of his songs, though, his thoughts on public approval are actually quite the opposite to what you may expect.
2: The only approval I really look for is my own, because it's the only way to do it. I've tried it every which way, you know, and it really is the only thing that counts, is if you like it, then you can give it to the world, and and at least when the critics say it's a bunch of rubbish, say, well, I like it. And as long as you're convinced you do like it, um, that's the main thing.
0: Similarly, the world can see Paul however they like, but Paul's own outlook on himself is the pure vision that shapes the core of his being.
2: You know, the thing is, um, I am still that little kid that grew up in Liverpool. Okay, I got really famous, but in here, I'm still that little kid. So, um, I'm amazed at like the audience reaction and stuff and because it's like, I still don't believe it.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, um, and the way I think, just like when I'm at home, yes. I'm just slobbing out watching television. Like any, like anyone, so um, so it's kind of him and me. Me is me that, that was always in this right. body, and the body's just grown up.
0: Sure, the guy um, behind the eyeballs.
2: Yeah, uh, and then him is that famous guy. Wow, he's very famous.
0: Despite Paul's insistence that he is like anyone, many people look up to Paul and the Beatles. But what kind of people did the Beatles look up to? One of them was Maharishi Mahiyogi, Yogi, who was the person who introduced them to meditation and the reason for their trip to Rishikesh in 1968.
2: It was actually George Harrison's wife, Patty, who had heard that Maharishi was coming to town. And <clears throat> she said we should all go. It was one of those things. And I was personally not in a good, good place. I think, you know, just overdoing it in the 60s. So I was just not very sort of centered and I was looking for something. I think we all were. So we heard that Maharishi was going to have a meeting and give a lecture. And we all went along to listen. It was um, very interesting. It was very calming. And it seemed like something that was worth trying. He put it very well. He made it seem simple. He made it seem very attractive, and so I think we were all just sold. So what happened then? We went to Bangor in Wales, and we attended a, a little seminar there. And then eventually we went out to Rishikesh with him, which right. was more sustained. It was. It was great. It was. Um, Very straightforward, very simple. Wake up, you would then go for breakfast in the morning, a light breakfast. You just socialize a bit with the other members and uh, just get to know each other. And then you would go back for your morning meditation. you go back to your room. We had little chalets kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Each of us had little rooms, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: which were very simple but adequate. And you would just sit and you would meditate then there was lunch and, you, and you'd, again you'd socialize and chat and stuff and then you'd meditate in the afternoons sometimes she would have a meeting every so often with you um, and you could talk to him about your experiences and he would ch- help
1: guide mm-hmm. you mm-hmm.
2: and then in the evening there was a kind of question and answer session mm-hmm. which was slightly more formal that was in a hall and we would all just be in there, all the uh, all the students, and Maharishi would come on and talk, and then he would take questions. He would, he would just listen mm-hmm. uh, about people's experiences, and that was kind of that was the sort of thing that happened each day. But yeah, there were some very blissful moments. I remember one in particular when I'd been meditating for a little while, and I'd got to a really good place, and I remember the feeling was that I was a feather, I felt like I actually was a feather, floating over a hot air pipe. I was just a very nice feeling, and I remember that vividly. Uh And I reported that to my and he giggled, yes, this is good!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Meditation is something that comes from nothing, much like writing a song. Here, Paul explains his take on writing music.
2: Yeah, uh, if you think, oh, I'll write a song, which, you know, I've got some time and I'm just sitting around, <clears throat> I'm fed up with watching telly, I think oh, I could do, so I get my guitar and I'm very conscious of the fact there's there's nothing there. I've got, I haven't got i got any idea what I'm gonna do, it's a black hole. But then I start picking away and get a little bit of an idea, I go, oh, that's nice. Then you follow that trail. And at the end of maybe two or three hours, um, you've suddenly got this thing. You've got this song. So now, instead of a black hole, you can now go and play this thing to people. You can now present this little discovery. Look what i just done. And it's a great thing to be able to do. It's, it's kind of magical.
0: And at 80 years old, he's still writing songs today. To most people, this may seem like an abundance of hard work, although Paul has a completely different outlook.
2: Yeah, I, I say to people when they say you work hard, I say, well, you we don't work music, we play it. And it, even though it might sound a bit glib, it is true. To me, it, it would be a hobby if I didn't do it professionally. Uh, it's just something I love. It's because, you you know, you're creating this thing out of a black hole and it's very satisfying. So I love to do that. So I just keep on and on. I mean, I've always got a song on the go. I've got a few on the go at the moment, you know, um, just because I like the whole puzzle of, let's try and make this song work. Is it interesting enough? Does it say it in a good enough way? Maybe I should change that line. It's an ongoing interesting thing for me Uh, and then when you feel you've got it right it's a okay that'll do and it's very satisfying. I can't see myself ever stopping so yeah there's a lot of work or a
0: lot of play.